why don't we go ahead and do this uh, and see what we've got time-wise left over. I um, was really excited about this, and uh, as many hours were in the day, it just came down to um, a little hiccup at the end and some technical difficulties. But um, So we're going to do a Bible survey, and uh, I think Skip Heitzig did one, and he called it the Bible at... 30,000 feet, <laughs> and today ours might be 30,000 feet, but I think in the weeks to come it's going to be like 100,000 feet or something, and we're probably going to just look at Jesus and kind of this theme through the scriptures and a little bit of a, you know, the survey of the context of the books and stuff, but even just want to just get a glimpse of Jesus and um, God's mission in um, scripture to save the nations and uh, we might even do a little review and backtrack a little next week. So hopefully we'll make it through Judge uh, Joshua. I had Judges almost done. But, but uh, so that's why I say if we get through Joshua, we're going to need to do some, raise the elevation a little and kind of get a more broad look. <laughs> Since we only have about five more weeks of, of class, I think. But uh, let me get my notes drawn up just in case. Okay. Lord, just thank you for each individual here tonight who's just um, dedicating these Wednesday nights to growing in knowledge of who you are, Lord. And these are different nights than a normal Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or something where it's um, preaching. Lord, it's a little more teaching and um and Lord, while we want to grow in our knowledge of you, we pray that that knowledge would be that true gnosko, that true to know by experience. We want to experience you, Lord. And as we get just a, a, a view of um, the Pentateuch plus a book um, tonight, just may we just get that sense of your love for us and your pursuit of us. Um, thinking of my reading of just the Leviticus section and just how you are holy. Lord, just pour your holiness out upon our class, Lord. Lord, we know that you are holy, so you say to, for us to be holy. So we would just ask for your holiness. And in the week that's coming up, Lord, of fasting and setting ourselves apart to humble ourselves and confess sin and just be purified and have your work, Lord. Um, think of how many schools and classes just the enemy has attacked uh, with just impurity, Lord. And just let that not be said of our class, God. Just work in us a refinement and, and a holiness that would come from you. Um, as we see your faithfulness to Israel, uh, Lord, we know that you're faithful to us, God. Um, think of how Israel, even just in Romans 9, 10, and 11... Um, that uh, there's a group that's just not saved. Um, and yet your promises are still good to Israel, Lord. And so just let us glean from your faithfulness to Israel tonight. We love you and are studying of this survey of the Old Testament. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so general outline here is to, to look at uh, the book the author, 
And in some of these Mosaic books, the author, uh, we're not going to like go over Mosaic, uh, Moses so much or the proof because it's pretty similar in the Pentateuch. Uh, the time frame that the book was written in, uh, where we see Christ in the book, um, uh, some of the keys to the book, uh, and then a survey of the book. So that's kind of a general outline of it. might switch up depending on the book. But uh, And then next week, I think we're going to kind of remove a couple of those things in an effort because... Um, in an effort to kind of see more Jesus, get an idea of the meta-narrative of the text, and also cover more ground and, like, get a whole bunch. Because, you know, some of you might not know what some of the minor prophets are about or some of the major prophets. And I want, just, I want you to just be a little more familiar with um, what these books are. And that might make it a little more palatable to want to go and read and, and maybe understand a little bit what was going on. So, not that you need that. I know that I do most of the time. Uh, so let's just start at Genesis. Um, the first part of Genesis focuses on the beginning and spread of sin in the world and culminates in the devastating flood in the days of Noah. Oh, and by the way, if you have your Bible, if you don't, maybe uh, you might want to grab one in the back or something, but maybe just kind of flip to the, the book that we're in and then just, you know, as the survey is happening, you might want to flip to the chapter that's referenced. It's just mostly a lot of references um, and just, you know, that might be a good way to help follow along. Uh, but if you want to just stick with the page in, in hand, that's okay too. Um, <clears throat> so that's the first part of the book. Uh, the spread of sin, uh, the flood. A second part of the book would be God's dealings with one man, Abraham. Uh, God promised to bring salvation and blessing to the world. Abraham and his descendants learned firsthand uh, that it is always safe to trust in the Lord in times of famine and in feasting, blessings and bondage. Uh, from Abraham, and then you look at the line, to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, God's promises begin to come to fruition in a great nation possessing a great land. Genesis is a Greek word meaning origin, source, generation, or beginning. The original Hebrew title, Bereshith, means in the beginning. So, great book to have in the beginning. Uh, although Genesis, for the author, uh, does not directly name its author, and although Genesis ends some three centuries before Moses was born, the whole of Scripture and church history uh, and church history are unified in their adherence to the Mosaic authorship of Genesis. The Old Testament is replete with both direct and indirect testimonies to the Mosaic authorship of the entire Pentateuch. The early church uh, openly held to the Mosaic authorship, as does the first century uh, Jewish historian Josephus. As would be expected, the Jerusalem Torah, and, uh, Torah also supports Moses as author. Uh, I like this. It would be difficult to find a man in all the range of Israel's life who was better prepared or qualified to write this history. He was trained in the wisdom of the Egyptians, Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Moses had been previous, uh, providentially prepared to understand and integrate under the inspiration of God all the available records, manuscripts, and oral narratives. The time that Genesis was written... Genesis divides neatly into three geographical settings. First of all, the Fertile Crescent. 
chapters 1 through 11. Secondly, Israel, 12 through 36, and Egypt, chapters 37 through 50. The setting of the first 11 chapters changes rapidly as it stands more than 2,000 years and 1,500 spans, I should say, more than 2,000 years and 1,500 miles and paints the majestic task of creation, the Garden of Eden, the Noahic Flood, and the towering citadel of Babylon. The middle section of Genesis rapidly funnels down from the broad rim of the two millennial spent in the Fertile Crescent, less than 200 years, and the little country of Canaan. Um, not sure what this was. Runaway, I think that's supposed to be, and rampant immorality and idolatry of the Canaanites. Godliness, um, the godliness of Abraham rapidly degenerates into gross immorality uh, in some of his descendants. By the way, if, there's some things that I wanted to edit out here that were from my speech to text, so that's one of the things that was a little frustrating today. Uh, in the last 14 chapters, God dramatically saves the small Israelite nation from extinction by transferring the 70 persons to Egypt. I like that. 70 people came down into Egypt so that they could grow and multiply. Uh, Egypt is an unexpected womb. I like that. For the growth of God's chosen nation, Israel, to be sure, but one in which they are isolated from the maiming influence of Canaan. So just God in his providence, he provided uh, through the famine uh, down there in the womb of Egypt, but also he provided some protection from the gross immorality that was going on in Canaan, only to be uh, you know, matched 400 years later by what was going on in Egypt, to be delivered out of Egypt. Uh, Genesis spends more time than any other book in the Bible, uh, spans more time than any other book in the Bible. In fact, it covers more than all 65 other books of the Bible put together. The Christ. Genesis moves from the general to the specific in its messianic predictions. Christ is the seed of woman in Genesis 3.15. We have the proto-evangelium. Hopefully you're, uh, that's just something that's top of your mind all the time. Like Genesis 3.15, proto-evangelium, uh, you go there. Uh, or it's known as the first gospel. The plan for redemption of fallen man is laid out. Jesus' lineage from the line of Seth in chapter 4.25, the son of Sham, the descendant of Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribe of Judah. So we see just the line out uh, of Jesus' beginning of his genealogy. Christ is also seen in people and events that serve as types. A type is a historical fact that illustrates a spiritual truth. Uh, we've been studying in 1 Corinthians uh, quite a bit that Adam is a type of him who is to come. And we reference Romans chapter 5. Um, both entered the world to a special active God as sinless men. Adam is the head of the old creation. Christ is the head of the new creation. You guys are pretty familiar with that in the last few Sundays. Um, Abel's acceptable offering of a blood sacrifice points to Christ. And there's a parallel in his murder by his brother, Cain. Melchizedek, uh, we studied this in Hebrews last summer. Uh, as you get to Genesis 14, uh, Melchizedek is either a type of Christ or is a Christophany. A, uh, an actual appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. 
Uh, he's given titles like righteous king, king of Salem, or king of peace, or king of Jerusalem. Um, it's been said he's made like the son of God. Uh, you also read that he has no beginning and no end, no genealogy, no mother, no father, um, and just all of these things that point to Jesus. He also brings out the bread and the wine, and he's called priest of the most high God, even though he's not from a tribe of Levi. Uh, Levi hasn't come yet. <laughs> um, great study to do in Melchizedek, for sure. Uh, Joseph is also a type of Christ. Joseph and Christ are both objects of um, are both objects of special. I'm not sure what that's supposed to say. Affection <laughs> uh, of their fathers. Both are hated by their brothers. Both are rejected as rulers over their brothers. Both are conspired against and sold for silver. Both are condemned and innocent. And both are raised from humiliation to glory by the power of God. So really cool to look at that. And that's just a few things that point to Jesus. Um, if you're ever just like looking for something to listen to uh, in, in your jogs or whatever, uh, go to calvarycorvallis.org and listen to Pastor Rob's Old Testament. Just start in Genesis and download it. You can, I'm not sure if they got podcasts. I don't think they're for a college campus town. They don't have podcast um but you can download it you know most of you guys are pretty tech savvy um but his old testament series is great and as he goes through like exodus and stuff like he just pulls out all these types and shows us jesus really well in the old testament so um some keys of genesis a key word is beginning you guys got off easy tonight huh you don't have spaces there or do you oh really <laughs> I'm not following this, so I didn't realize. Yeah. Um, beginning. Genesis gives the beginning of almost everything, including the beginning of the universe, life, man, Sabbath, death, marriage, sin. <laughs> Is what that's supposed to say? Siri! Redemption, family, literature, cities, art, language, and sacrifice. Key verses are Genesis 3.15, which says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 12.3 is a key verse to Abraham. Uh, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So key verses as we look at these, these are things that kind of lay out the theme or show the theme of that section of Scripture. Um, or are you know very important for the rest of Scripture, such as Genesis three fifteen. The key chapter would be Genesis three or excuse me Genesis fifteen. Central to all of Scripture is the Abrahamic covenant. So just Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant, which is given in twelve and ratified in fifteen. Israel receives three specific promises. First of all. The promise of the great land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That's in 15:18. Secondly, they're promised a great nation. Abraham is promised a great nation. And third, the promise of a great blessing. A survey of the book. Genesis, I like this. Genesis is not so much a history of man as it is the first chapter in the history of the redemption of man. 
As such, Genesis is a highly selective spiritual interpretation of history. Genesis is divided into four great events, chapter 1 through 11, and four great people, chapters 12 through 50. See how we need to like speed it up if we're going to get through the whole Bible. <laughs> yeah. Um, probably just, it's selective on everything that was going on because it spans like 2,000 years, right? So it just takes the important parts of history, the history of the beginning of man and sin and cities and nations and God's plan for Israel and everything, and it's not just anything, it's the spiritual aspects of those things. So, um, I think it said a ways back, like 2,000 years and like 1,500 miles are covered, and so it kind of selects the important parts of history at that time. Um, so go to it for history on the flood, not to the movie Noah. All right? Okay. Okay, anyways. Um, four great events, chapters 1 through 11, lay the foundation upon which the whole Bible is built and center on four key events. Creation. God is the sovereign creator of matter, energy, space, and time. Creation is the, uh, no, let's skip that. Uh, fall, so creation, fall. Creation is followed by corruption. In the first uh, scene, man is separated from God, Adam from God. And in the second sin, man is separated from man, Cain and Abel. So first sin, man is separated from God. Second sin, man is separated from man. In spite of the devastating curse of the fall, God promises the hope of redemption through the seed of the woman. Anyone guess what the next one is? Next great event, flood. As man, uh, as man multiplies and uh, sin multiplies until God is compelled to destroy humanity with the exception of Miller and his family. <laughs> Yes, Miller is a character that the Torah speaks of. <laughs> Noah Miller. Meet the Millers. Siri! Darn you, Siri. Uh, it's supposed to be Noah. Autocorrect. Sometimes she does that. Uh, nations. Genesis teaches the unity of the human race. We are all children of Adam through Noah... But because of rebellion at the Tower of Babel, God fragments the single culture and the language of the post-flood world and scatters people all over the face of the earth. You think Miller's good? Um, yeah. There were some things written by Siri that would have been sinful, and I was so glad that I caught it. It was like, holy! Okay. Four great people. Moving on from events to people. Uh, once the nations are scattered, God focuses on the one man and his descendants through whom he will bless all the nations. Abraham is the first guy. The calling of Abraham in chapter 12 is the pivotal point of the book. Hey, buddy. Here's a paper if you want it. I'm not sure. Are there much more over there? What page are we on, guys? Okay. All right. Um, 
The three covenant promises God makes to Abraham, land, descendants, and blessing, are foundational to his program of bringing salvation upon the earth. Isaac, God establishes his covenant with Isaac. It's the spiritual link with Abraham. Jacob, God transforms this man from selfishness to servanthood and changes his name to Israel. Of course, he's the father of the 12 tribes. Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, suffers at the hand of his brothers and becomes a slave in Egypt. After his dramatic rise to the rulership of Egypt, Joseph delivers his family from famine and brings them out to Canaan into Goshen. Or I'm sorry, what's that say? Came, brings them out into Goshen, which is uh, part of Egypt. Not sure. Isn't it fun to like have the mystery here? Let's see, Joseph is reminded rise of from Egypt. Joseph delivers his family from famine and brings them out of. Oh, yeah, Canaan into Goshen. Yeah. Okay. Good job, guys. I know. Where was he from? Genesis ends on a note of the impending bondage and the death of Joseph. There's great need for the redemption that is to follow in the book of Exodus. Um, other information below is a graph illustrating the lengths of the lives listed in Genesis 5. You can look at that on your own time as well as a nice little informative section by Dr. Henry Morris. But for the sake of time, we're not going to go there tonight. Uh, moving on to Exodus. See, this won't take long. <laughs> we're at 30,000 feet right now, just kind of taken off. Uh, the book of Exodus. Exodus is the record of Israel's birth as a nation within the protective womb of Egypt. Jacob's, or Israel's, family of 70 rapidly multiplies at the right time, accompanied with severe birth pains and inflammation, numbering between two and three million people, Israel is brought into the world where it is divinely protected, fed, and nourished. The Hebrew title means, now these are the names. It comes from the first phrase in 1-1. Exodus begins with now to show as the continuation of Genesis. The Greek title is Exodus a word meaning exit, departure, or going out. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this word to describe the book by its key event. Uh, as you can look at 19.1, where they go out. And Luke 9.31, 2 Peter 1.15, the word exodus used there speaks of physical death, that of Jesus or Peter. This exodus um, theme of redemption uh, is well used uh, as a book of departure taken from its Greek title. Uh, the author was Moses, and similar reasons as you look at Genesis authorship. Time frame of Exodus. Um, if the early date for Exodus circa 140 or 1445 BC is assumed, this book was composed during the 40-year wilderness journey between 1445 and 1405 BC. Moses probably kept an account of God's work which he then edited in the plains of Moab shortly before his death. Exodus covers the period from the arrival of Jacob in Egypt circa 1875 BC to the erection of the tabernacle 431 years later in the wilderness 
circa 1445 BC. Looking at the Christ of Exodus. Exodus contains no direct messianic prophecies, but it is full of types and portraits of Christ. And here's seven of them. Moses. Where's the passage that Moses says um, that the Lord will raise up another prophet from among you? Him you shall hear. It's in Deuteronomy 18. Oh, sweet. That's what notes are for. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Dozens of ways Moses is a type of Christ. Deuteronomy 18:15. Both Moses and Christ are prophets, priests, and kings. They are prophets, priests, and kings. Although Moses was never made king, he functioned as the ruler of Israel, both as kinsmen, redeemers. Both are endangered in infancy. Both phone home. <laughs> Early. Uh... I wonder what that was. We've been talking about how I've used speech to text today, Kevin, and it's betrayed me in various horrible ways. <laughs> Some were sinful. I, I edited those before I printed them. Um, both, something. Uh, both are deliverers, lawgivers, and mediators. The Passover... John 1, 29, 36, and 1 Corinthians 5, 7 make it clear that Christ is our slain God and the Passover lamb. The seven feasts, each of these feasts pertain to some aspect of the ministry of Christ. We'll look at those later. The Exodus, Paul relates baptism to the Exodus event because baptism symbolizes death to the old and identification with the new. The manna and the water from the rock. The New Testament applies both to Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 3, just in case you're wondering. The tabernacle, its materials, colors, furnitures, uh, arrangements, the tabernacle clearly speaks of the person of Christ and the way of redemption. The development is progressive from suffering, blood, and death to beauty, holiness, and the glory of God. Uh, the tabernacle, I like this, the tabernacle is theology in a physical form. The high priests, in several ways, the high priest foreshadows the ministry of Christ, our great high priest. Great studies to do in the book of Hebrews. Some keys to Exodus. A key word is Redemption. Central to the book of Exodus is the concept of redemption. Israel was redeemed from bondage in Egypt and into a covenant relationship with God. From the redemption of Moses in the Nile to the redeeming presence of God in the tabernacle, Exodus records God's overwhelming acts of deliverance by which he demonstrates his right to be Israel's king. Key verses are Exodus 6.6. 6. Um, easy, you want to read that? Blaine, you want to hit that next one? Um, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a, a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. 
Thank you. Key chapter would be Exodus 12 through 14. The climax of the entire Old Testament is recorded in chapters 12 through 14. Salvation of Israel through blood, the Passover, and through power, the Red Sea. Uh, the Exodus is the central event of the Old Testament as the cross is of the New Testament. A survey of Exodus here. Uh, we won't do a survey in every book, especially in the uh, in a first section of the weeks to come here, so we can get through some more, cover some more ground. Uh, Exodus abounds with God's powerful redemptive acts on behalf of his oppressed people. It begins in pain and ends in liberation. Good news from the groaning of the people to the glory of God. It is the continuation of the story that begins in Genesis with the 70 descendants of Jacob to move from Canaan to Egypt, then multiplied under adverse conditions to multitudes of over 2 million people when the Israelites finally turn to God for deliverance from their bondage. God quickly responds by redeeming them with an outstretched arm and with great judgment, 6-6. God faithfully uh, fulfilled his promise made to Abraham centuries before in Genesis 15. The book falls into two parts, redemption from Egypt in chapters 1 through 18 and revelation from God. Redemption from Egypt, after four centuries of slavery, the people of Israel cry to God, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for deliverance. God has already prepared Moses for this purpose and has commissioned him at the burning bush to stand before Pharaoh as the advocate for Israel. However, Pharaoh hardened his heart Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? God soon reveals himself to Pharaoh through series of object lessons, the ten plagues. These plagues grow in severity until the tenth brings death to the firstborn of every household of Egypt. Israel is redeemed through this play by means of the Passover lamb. The Israelites, uh, plague by the way, Uh, the Israelites, no play for sure. The Israelites' faith in God at this point becomes the basis for their natural redemption. As they leave Egypt, God guides them by a pillar of fire and smoke and saves them from Egypt's pursuing army to the miraculous crossing of the Red of the Sea. In the wilderness, he protects and sustains them through their journeys. Uh, secondly, revelation from God in chapters 19 through 40. That the people uh, experience God's deliverance, guidance, and protection. They are ready to be taught what God expects of them. The reading, the reading people must not be uh, must be set apart to walk with God. This is why the emphasis. Okay, might just. Okay, this is why the emphasis moves from narration in chapter 1 through 18 to legislation in chapters 19 through 14. On Mount Sinai, Moses receives God's moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, as well as the pattern for the tabernacle to be built in the wilderness. After God judges the people for their worship of the golden calf, the tabernacle is constructed and consecrated. It's a building of beauty and a in a barren land, and reveals much about the person of God and the way of redemption. Little chart, couple charts here. Um, most of this information is out of the Open Bible um, book introductions, and so I took a picture of some of these little timeline charts here. They can be helpful. Uh, Leviticus. 
The book of Leviticus, Leviticus is God's guidebook for his newly redeemed people, showing them how to worship, serve, and obey a holy God. Fellowship with God through sacrificing, sacrificial obedience shows the awesome holiness of God of Israel. Indeed, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus's focus was on the worship and walk of the nation of God. And if it is, Israel was redeemed and established as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Leviticus shows how God's people are to fulfill their priestly calling. Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew title of this book is, And He Called. The Talmud refers to Leviticus as the law of the priests and the law of the offerings. The great title appearing in the Septuagint is, That Which Pertains to the Levites. From this word, the Latin Vulgate derives its name, Leviticus, which is adopted as the English title. This title is slightly misleading because the book does not uh, deal with the Levites as a whole, but more with the priests, a segment of the Levites. Uh, the authorship, um, similar to the other Mosaic books, but what's interesting here um, is that uh, the kind of arguments used to confirm the Mosaic authorship of Genesis and Exodus can also apply to Leviticus because they paint the Pentateuch as a literary unit. The time that Leviticus was written, no geographical movement takes place in Leviticus. The children of Israel remain camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. The new calendar of Israel begins with the first Passover of Exodus and according to Exodus 40, the tabernacle is completed exactly one year later. Kind of neat history. Leviticus picks up the story at this point, and its events occur in the first month of the second year. Numbers 1.1 opens at the beginning of the second month. Moses probably wrote much of Leviticus during the first month, and they had put it in its final form shortly before his death in Moab, about 1405 B.C. The Christ of Leviticus... The book of Leviticus is replete with types and allegiance to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Some of them more important ones include the five offerings, uh, the burnt offering typifies Christ's total offering in submission to his Father's will. It's that picture of the whole sacrifice being on the altar, being consumed. The meal offering typifies Christ's sinless service. The peace offering is a type of the fellowship believers have with God through the work of the cross. The sin offering typifies Christ as our guilt bearer. The trespass offering typifies Christ's payment for the damage of sin. The high priest, as we see in the Old Testament, or in Leviticus, uh, several comparisons and contrasts between Aaron, the first high priest, and Christ, our eternal high priest. Uh, in the seven feasts, uh, Passover feast speaks of the substitutionary death of the Lamb of God. Christ died on the day of Passover. Uh, bread feast speaks of the holy walk of the believer, 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8. The Feast of the First Fruits speaks of Christ's resurrection. 
He's the first fruits of the resurrected of all believers. We've been studying that in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and actually, he rose on the day of the first fruits. Pentecost speaks of the descent of the Holy Spirit after Christ's ascension. The Feast of Trumpets uh, speak of the Day of Atonement. And the Tabernacles Feast speaks of events associated with the second advent of Christ. Uh, this may be why these three are separated by long gaps from the first four uh, in, in Israel's annual cycle. Some key words to Leviticus. A key word is holiness. Might take a break halfway through here. Holiness, all right. Leviticus centers on the concept of the holiness of God and how unholy people can be accepted as we approach him and then remain in continued fellowship. The way to God is only through blood sacrifice and the walk with God is only through obedience to his laws. Uh, key verses are Leviticus 17, 11 and 27 through 8. Lou, do you want to read that? The key chapter would be Leviticus 16. Thanks, Lou, by the way. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur was the most important single day in the Hebrew calendar as it's only the only day the high priest could enter the most holy place to make atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. A survey of this book uh, like this, it's been said that it took God only one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. In Exodus, Israel is redeemed and established as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Leviticus, Israel is taught how to fulfill their priestly call. They've been led out from the land of bondage and listened to the uh, in, something listened <laughs> into the sanctuary of God in Leviticus. They move from redemption to service, from deliverance to dedication. This book serves as a handbook for the Levitical priesthood, giving instructions and regulations for worship. It's used to guide a newly redeemed people into worship, service, and obedience to God. Leviticus falls into two major sections. First of all, sacrifice in chapters 1 through 17, and sanctification in 18 through 27. So for sacrifice, the section teaches that God must be approached by the sacrificial offerings, by the mediation of the priesthood, by the purification of the nation from uncleanness, and by the provision for national cleansing and fellowship. The blood sacrifice uh, reminds the worshiper that because of sin, the holy God requires a costly gift of life. The blood of the innocent sacrificial animal becomes a substitute for the life of the guilty offering. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, Hebrews 9.22 says. So that's sacrifice. And then you know, the second half of the book is sanctification. The Israelites serve a holy God who requires them to be holy as well. 
To be holy means to be set apart or separated. They are to be separated from other nations unto God. In Leviticus, the idea of holiness appears 87 times, sometimes indicating ceremonial holiness, ritual requirements, and all other types of moral holiness. Purity of life. The sanctification extends to the people of Israel, the priesthood, um, there were shipped. <laughs> you can hear, like, if you just read it, then it would make sense. But if you look at it, uh, and their life in Canaan, and their special valves. <laughs> Darn you, Siri. Um, if I would. Ooh, vows. Thank you. Yeah, just, you guys close your eyes and don't read it. <laughs> and I'll read it to you, and you'll totally get it. <laughs> Uh, it is necessary to remove the defilement that separates the people of God so that they can have a walk of fellowship with the Redeemer. And just a little maybe helpful chart for your own use there. Are we in Numbers already? Numbers is a book of wonderings. No, wanderings. <laughs> I did edit that. <laughs> wanderings. Not to be confused with wonderings. <laughs> It takes its name from two numberings of the Israelites. The first outside uh, in the second in the plains of Moab. Most of the book, however, describes Israel's experience as they wander in the wilderness. The lesson of numbers is clear. It's clear. <laughs> Maybe necessary... Hmm. All right, whatever. For Israel, I know. I know. It's like, what? Okay. <laughs> this is great. Okay. Yeah, yeah. To pass the wilderness experiences, one does not have to live there. For Israel, I like this, an 11-day journey became a 40-year agony. Um, the title of Numbers comes from the first word in Hebrew, um, of the Hebrew text, and he said. Um, however, in the wilderness, all right, what we do is we go through Hebrew, the Greek title uh, in the Septuagint is Numbers. The Latin Vulgate followed the title, and the English adopted that as well, basically. Moving right along to the time. Leviticus covers only one month. Oh, whoops. We're in numbers. I edited that. It didn't save. I edited it. I'm telling you. No, no, that's right. It's ours. Leviticus covers only one month, but numbers. Okay, cool. Because <laughs> there was a similar one that I moved around. Leviticus covers only one month, but numbers stretches over almost 39 years, circa 444 to 1405 B.C. It records Israel's movement from the last 20 days at Mount Sinai, the wandering, wandering around Kadesh Barnea, and finally the arrival in the plains of Moab in the 40th year. Their tents occupy several square miles whenever, the camp, whenever they camp, since there's probably over two and a half million people based on the census figures in Numbers 12, 6. God miraculously feeds and sustains them in the desert. He preserves their clothing, gets them manna, meat, water, leaders, and a promise. The Christ in Numbers. Perhaps the clearest portrait of Christ in Numbers 
was the bronze serpent on the stake. It's the picture of the crucifixion, and Jesus himself references that in John 3.14. Uh, the rock that quenches the thirst of the multitude is also a type of Christ. Chapter 10, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians says that. Uh, the daily, excuse me, manna, or manner if you're from Arkansas, uh, is a picture of the bread of life who later comes down from heaven. Balaam foresees the rulership of Christ in uh, Numbers 24:17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. The guidance and presence of Christ <laughs> seen in the pillar of clouds and fire and the center sinners refuge in Christ may be seen in the six cities of refuge. The red heifer sacrifice in Numbers 19 is also considered a type of Christ. Key word here, wanderings. Again, just in case you didn't like writing it down one time. Numbers records the failure of Israel to believe in the promise of God and the resulting judgment of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Key verses, Numbers 14, 22, Steph. Ginger? chapter is number 14 the critical turning point of numbers may be seen when israel rejects god by refusing to go up and conquer the promised land god judges israel according to the number of days in which he spied out the land a survey of numbers here israel as a nate let's see if i can blow mine up is yours tiny sorry guys not sure why don't worry, I don't have any more practices on Wednesdays. Because <laughs> that extra hour would have really helped. Okay. Uh, survey of numbers. I do have games, though. Okay. Survey of numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. So anyways, Israel as a nation is in its infancy at the outset of the book, only 13 months after the exodus of Egypt. So this is cool stuff to know as you go in to read it. It's like... Just coming out. And Numbers, the book of divine dis uh, discipline, becomes necessary for the nation to go through the painful process of testing and maturation. God must teach his people the consequences of irresponsible decisions. The 40 years of wilderness experience transforms them from a rabble of ex-slaves ex -slaves, <laughs> ready to t take the promised land. Numbers begins with the old generation moves through a tragic transition and ends with the new generation at the doorway to the land of Canaan. The old generation, chapters 1 through 10, 10, uh, is a generation who witnessed God's miraculous um, actually delivering uh, some preservation, receives further direction from God uh, while they're still there at the foot of Mount Sinai. God's instructions are very explicit, reaching every aspect of their lives. He's the author of order. Don't try to figure it out. 
<laughs> uh, he's the author of Order, Not Confusion, and this is seen in the way he organizes the people around the tabernacle, uh, turning from the outward conditions of the camp. Um, 1 4, chapter 1, colon 4, uh, to the inward condition, chapters 5 through 10. Okay, you're right, Kayla. Uh, numbers describing the spiritual preparation of the people. And then there's the tragic transition, chapters 10 through 25 there. Israel follows Gun step by step until Canaan is in sight. Then in the crucial moment, this is crazy. Um, besides this, this is really crazy. That crucial moment at Kadesh when they drew back in unbelief. And man, Hebrews has something to say about that. They are such a warning for even us as Christians today that we don't draw back. Uh, you know, remember how it says, I think it's in chapter 3, uh, lest there be in any one of us an evil heart of unbelief. Um, therefore, uh, their murmurings had already become incessant by this time, chapter 11, but their unbelief after sending out the 12 spies at Kadesh Barnea is something God will not tolerate. The rebellion at Kadesh marks the pivotal point in the book. The generation of the Exodus will not be the generation of the conquest. Unbelief brings discipline and hinders God's blessing. The old generation is doomed to literally kill time for 40 years in wilderness wanderings. One year for every day spent by the 12 spies in inspecting the land. They're judged by disinheritance and death as their journey changes from one of anticipation to one of aimlessness. Only Joshua and Caleb, the two spies believing God, enter in. Almost nothing is recorded about these transitional years. The new generation, uh, chapters 26 through 36, when the transition to the new generation is complete, the people move to the plains of Moab, directly east of the promised land. For they can enter the uh, land, for them to enter the land, they must wait until all is ready. Here they are. Uh, seeing the instructions, the new census in taken, is taken. Joshua is appointed as Moses' successor. And some of the people settle in the Transjordan, or on the east side of the Jordan. Well, notice that it says, like Hebrews says, that they had an evil heart of unbelief. So... Like, really, it was just, that was like an outward symptom of what was going on inside their heart. I mean, because, like, I have it written in my Bible, like, all the times that they were murmuring against Moses, and Moses would tell them, when you murmur against me, you're actually murmuring against God, you know, just time and time, sometimes chapter after chapter, just murmuring, complaining, wailing, you know, and it's a good lesson for us about our murmuring and things like that, you know, but, um, but, you know, it just kind of was that pinnacle of it when they went in to spy out the land. They'd seen God provide for them all that way. And then they go in and, you know, some giants and things like that. And it just showed that they had a wicked heart, you know. And that was that kind of the... Yeah, you know, God God had showed himself faithful to them, though. I mean, there should have been like, no doubt. It's like you quoted, and I heard a pastor say that this week, that it, it took uh, 30 yeah. years to get Egypt out of the people. Yeah. 
Yeah, there was, you know, I, don't, I can't remember right chapter, verse, but the Lord says he tested them in the wilderness, you know. And in the testing, um, they failed, <laughs> you know. But, uh, yeah, so good warning for us, though, of um, lest we draw back from any evil hearts of unbelief in 2014. Um, I think we're in Deuteronomy now, huh? little picture chart there for you guys. Took it with my own iPhone for you. Um, the book here of Deuteronomy is also known as Moses' Upper Desert Discourse. Consists of a series of farewell messages by Israel's 120-year-old leader. His address or address to the new generation destined to possess the land of promise. Those who survived the 40 years of wilderness wandering. You want one of these? Or you're good? Okay, I just realized that you came in late. Um, like Leviticus, Deuteronomy contains a vast amount of legal detail, but its emphasis is on the layman rather than the priests. Moses reminds the new generation of the importance of obedience if they're to learn from the sad example of their parents. Um, yeah, a little bit of fun, great stuff there, but it means you know Deuteronomy is like uh, basically a repetition of the law or second law. The time frame Moses wrote to encourage the people to believe and obey God in order to receive his blessings. Uh, the Christ is very similar. If you would read the Exodus, go back and read Exodus. Uh, it's very similar uh, pointing to Christ in Deuteronomy. Key verses, uh, Deuteronomy 10, 12, 10, 13. So uh, Jason, why don't you read 12 and 13 and then Will, you can take Deuteronomy 30. chapter is 27. Formal ratification of the covenant occurs as Moses, the priests, the Levites, and all of Israel take heed to listen. Uh, O Israel, this day you'll become the people of the Lord your God. A survey of Deuteronomy. Is it nice for you guys that just a year ago we read through all these things? I I mean, in our fast we did if you were here. I mean, this is pretty fresh ground, you know. Um, some of you have read through like five times since then, but you know, uh, Deuteronomy in this survey here, Deuteronomy, uh, in its broadest outline is the record of the renewal of the old covenant given at Mount Sinai. This covenant is reviewed, explained in large and finally ratified in the plains of Moab. Moses accomplishes this primary through three sermons, primarily through three sermons, um, the move from a retrospective to an introspective and finally to a prospective look at God's dealings with Israel. Uh, Moses's first sermon is chapter 1 through 443. Moses reaches into the past to remind people to undeniable facts. Two, T-W-O. Two undeniable facts in their history. One, 
the moral judgment of God upon Israel's unbelief, and two, the deliverance and provision of God during times of obedience. The simple lesson is that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings punishment. Moses' second sermon is in chapter 4 through 26. This moral and legal section is the longest in the book because Israel's future as a nation in Canaan will depend upon a right relationship with God. These chapters review the three categories of the law. The testimonies, uh, these are the moral duties, the restatement and expansion of the Ten Commandments, plus an exhortation not to forget God's gracious deliverance. The statutes, secondly, these are the ceremonial duties, sacrifice, tithes, and fees. I knew she wouldn't get tithes. (laughs) Third, here, the ordinances. These are the civil and social duties, the system of justice, criminal laws, laws of warfare, rules of property, personal and family morality, and social justice. Moses' third sermon in chapters 27 through 34. In these chapters, Moses... uh, Moses is right, writes history in advance. Thank you. Uh, he predicted that what will befall Israel in the near future, blessings and cursings in the, in the distant future, dispersion among the nations, and eventual return. Moses lists the terms of the covenant seem to be ratified by the people uh, Moses, uh, because Moses will not be allowed to enter the land. He points Joshua appoints Joshua as his successor and delivers a farewell address to the multitude. God himself buries Moses in an unknown place, perhaps to prevent idolatry. I think it's Jude that speaks of Michael the archangel fighting with Satan over the body of uh, Moses, and he says, the Lord rebuke you, uh, Satan. Moses finally enters the promised land when he appears with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17.3. The last few verses of the Pentateuch, uh, 34, 10 through 12, are an appropriate epitaph for this great man. I was like, you're not going to get that one, are you, Siri? Then I forgot to go check it. Okay, Joshua is our last one tonight. We were going to do Judges, but it didn't come out. So, uh, the book of Joshua is the first of the 12 historical books, Joshua through Esther, forges a link between the Pentateuch and the remainder of Israel's history. Through three major military campaigns involving more than 30 enemy armies, the people of Israel, in a crucial lesson under Joshua's capable leadership, learn a crucial lesson. Victory comes through faith in God and obedience to his word, rather than to military might or numerical superiority. The title of this book is appropriately named after the central figure, Joshua. His original name is Salvation, but Moses evidently changed it to Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Uh, This is the Hebrew equivalent to the greater name Jesus, Thus, the Greek title given to the book in the Septuagint is Joshua, the son of Nun, Latin title, Book of Joshua. Um, his name is symbolic of the fact that although he is the leader of the Israelite nation during the conquest, the Lord is the conqueror. Excuse me. Um, the author of this is a little different because it's non-Mosaic, 
Although it cannot be proven, Jewish tradition seems correct in assigning Joshua authorship of this book. Um, Joshua 24:26 makes this clear statement. Barb, do you want to read that? This refers at least to Joshua's farewell charge, if not the book as a whole. Also see 18.9. Joshua, as Israel's leader and an eyewitness of most of the events, was the person best qualified to write the book. Even uses, uh, the book even uses the first person in one place, chapter 5, verse 6. The book was written soon after the events occurred. Rahab was still alive in chapter 6.25. Other evidences for early authorship are the detailed information about Israel's campaigns and the use of the agent names of Canaanite cities. Aged, I think. Ancient, thank you. Ancient, yeah! It's totally mad gabs in here. The unity of style and organization suggests a single authorship of the majority of the book. Three small portions, however, must have been added after Joshua's death. Uh, Joshua was born a slave in Egypt, but becomes a conqueror in Canaan. Isn't that awesome? That's kind of cool to think of Joshua. Born a slave in Egypt, was part of the Red Sea, was part of it all, and like, so cool, so cool. Sorry, a little personal interjection there. Uh, he served as a personal attendant to Moses as one of the 12 spies, of whom only he and, uh, I believe it says, and Caleb believed God, and is... I hope someone's writing these all down because I'm going to go back in and edit it. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, he was Moses' successor. Uh, outstanding qualities in him are obedient faith, courage, and dedication to God and his word. The time of Joshua. Joshua divides neatly um, in three-quarter geographical settings. Hmm. Uh, the Jordan River. Chapters 1 through 5, Canaan 6 through 13, and the 12 tribes situated on both sides of the Jordan, 13 through 24. The setting of the first five chapters begins east of the Jordan uh, as Joshua replaces Moses, crosses the Jordan on dry land, and finally prepares for war west of the Jordan. Like a wise general, Joshua utilizes the divide and conquer strategy, and his campaign leads into central Canaan, chapter 6 through 8, southern Canaan. And finally, into northern Canaan. After listing those areas yet to be conquered in chapter 13, Joshua undertakes a long task of dividing the promised land um, to all the tribes. First, he settles those two and a half tribes east of the Jordan, and then the nine and a half tribes west of the Jordan. Completing this, he's free to assign the six cities of refuge and the 48 cities of Levites, which are scattered among the tribes. The Christ in the book of Joshua. Although there are no direct messianic prophecies in the book, Joshua is clearly a type of Christ. His name, Yahweh, is salvation, is the Hebrew equivalent of the name Jesus. And his role of triumphantly leading his people into their possession, he foreshadows the one who will bring many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10, 2 Corinthians 2.14, and Romans 8.37. Joshua succeeds Moses and wins the victory unreached by Moses. Christ will succeed the Mosaic law and win the victory unreachable by the law. The commander of the army of the Lord in chapter 5, met by Joshua, evidently uh, is a pre-incarnated appearance of Christ. Joshua 
Um, Rahab's scarlet cord portrays safety through the blood, Hebrews 9.19. And amazingly, this Gentile woman is found in Christ's genealogy in Matthew 1.5. Keywords of Joshua, uh, keys of Joshua, a key word, conquest. The entire book of Joshua describes the entering, conquering, and occupying of the land of Canaan. This book begins with the statement of the promise of conquest and ends with the completion of the conquest. Key verses are Joshua 1 8 and 11 23. John, you want to read that? 1 8 and Nikki 11 23. This book of law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. You may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you key chapter is chapter 24. Some of the most critical periods of Israel's history are the transitions in leadership. Moses to Joshua, Joshua to the judges, and judges to the kings, and so on. Before his death and preparation of a major transition of leadership by one man, Joshua, to many of the judges, Joshua reviews for the people God's fulfillment of his promises and then challenges them to review their commitment to the covenant which is the foundation of all successful national life. Survey of the book, Joshua resumes the narrative where Deuteronomy left off and takes Israel from the wilderness to the promised land. Israel has now received its climactic point of fulfilling the century-old promise of Genesis of a homeland. The first half of Joshua describes the seven-year conquest of the land, and the second half gives the details of the division and settlement of the land. Conquest. First five chapters record the spiritual, moral, physical, and military preparations of Joshua and the people for the impending conquest of Canaan. Josh is going to charge by God to complete the task begun by Moses. After being encouraged by God, Joshua sends out to Spicy come back. Oh, and I edited that. I must not have saved it. I saw that and I chuckled like Spicy and I fixed it. Nope, didn't. Or it might have been somewhere else. Joshua sends out too spicy, come back, <laughs> with a favorable report, in contrast to the spies of the previous generation. Uh, I'll be in some faith, <laughs> albeit some faith, are united in the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. There's big faith there as those priests pack the ark in, and as their ankles uh, go down into the water, the water parts. Joshua's campaign in central Canaan 6 through 8 places a strategic wedge between the northern and southern cities, preventing a massive Canaanite allegiance against Israel. This divide-and-conquer strategy proves effective, but God's directions for taking the first city, Jericho, sounds like a foolish form of military. From a military point of view, the Lord uses this to test the people and to teach them that Israel's success in battle will always be by his power, not by their own might or cleverness. Sin must be dealt with at once because it brings severe consequence and defeat at Ai in chapter 7. Remember Achan uh, stealing the wedge of gold and the, the garment, I believe it was, hiding it under his carpet. Good lesson there. The southern and northern campaigns are also successful, but an un, 
but an unwise of made it into something, right? Gibeonites, all right? You guys remember the Gibeonite story? Where Israel was forced to protect them and disobey God's command to eliminate the Canaanites. Settlement uh, is another big part of this conquesting. Um, Joshua was growing old, and God tells them to divide the land among the 12 tribes. Much remains to be won, and the tribes are to continue the conquest by faith after Joshua's death. Joshua describes the allocation of land to the various tribes as well as inheritance of Caleb and the Levites. The last chapters record the conditions for continued successful settlement at Kadesh. Access to God as well as his forgiveness comes only through the divinely established sacrificial system, and civil war almost breaks out when eastern tribes build an altar that is misinterpreted by the western tribes, realizing a blessing comes from God only as Israel bases covenant. Joshua preaches a moving sermon, climaxed by Israel's renewal of their allegiance to the covenant. All right, you guys. Well, um, I've got judges on mine. I could just read it to you guys and see if you understand it. But I'll, I'll edit it up and we'll do it from more of a 100,000 feet view uh, in the time to come. So hopefully that made a little sense, even just kind of having a, a an outline understanding of it and some of the themes of the books. Um, this, I'm confident you guys have a pretty good understanding on um, Perhaps as we get more into some of the poetic books or the prophetic books. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.